High energy to combat High the energy. crippling depression that we're all facing under the horrible neoliberal regime of COVID-19 and all the bad capitalists out there who are fucking the world up. Yeah. Hi, I'm, well, I'm Matt. Are... <laughs> and I'm Hillary. Uh, and there are, there are no good capitalists. Uh, that's right. You don't even need to call them bad because that's that goes uh that goes without saying uh sometimes sometimes matt and i chat before we start recording i mean we usually chat for a little bit but sometimes we talk for a little bit longer and sometimes it's just uh you know it's really depressing and then we have to record a <laughs> podcast episode <laughs> to get in the we gotta get get you, we have to like get ourselves into the good vibes central uh, good uh, vibes a- atmosphere uh, that we that we like to pr- uh, promote and create on this uh, lovely podcast that you all listen to. Um, on this, the mo- the most good vibes of all podcasts. Good vibes central, uh, otherwise good known as central. Marooned on Mars with Matt and Hillary, where we discuss the novels of Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, a utopian science fictionalist. <laughs> Uh, in this case, we're reading a, uh, a revisionist historicalist uh, fiction uh, called The Years of Rice and Salt. And I'm just making up words to make myself sound intelligent. Uh, you do. You do. You sound quite intelligent. Oh, thank you so much. That's my main goal is just to sound intelligent. Um, we're in book eight, The War of the Asuras, which is one of the shortest chapters of the book. Uh, Super it's actually, short. I think it's the only one that has like just one, it's just one section. Most of the other, all the other chapters are divided into sections. This one, it just is one big, se- actually, no, the Warp and Weft was also just one section, I guess. Yeah, yeah, Maybe. yeah. But um, yeah, a, as you were saying, a weird chapter. A weird um, and I, I think pretty fascinating chapter, although I don't like, yeah, I'm really curious to talk about it. Um, yeah. because I feel like I have like a lot of kind of scattered thoughts, but I don't know where any of them really go. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get going, I wanted to just say that we've had a bunch of listeners send us uh, emails recently at mm-hmm. our, Mar- Mar- is it Marooned on Mars podcast at gmail.com? You would think we would know the title of our own email address by now. And yeah. yes, it is that. Yeah, After that's right. After 60 some odd episodes or something. <laughs> It is. After six, after sixty some odd years that we've been doing this podcast. Uh, uh, anyway, we've been getting just like so many nice emails from people, um, and I, I, I just like every time I read an email from somebody who listens to us, I am really um, filled with a lot of gratitude, which I mean very genuinely that somebody like not only listens but then wanted to write and like tell us something or say something, and usually people say stuff about like. Um, how they started reading uh, Kim Stanley Robinson and like what his novels mean to them and what getting to like, you know, feel like there are people having conversations about these novels mean. And I, 
it's just, it's so great at this moment when uh, it is so much easier to feel totally disconnected than it is to recognize any of the inherent connections that we have to each other. Like, that people are, you know, writing and saying, like, yes, um, I also love these books and I have these thoughts and I like listening to you all talk about them because like that also reminds me of these things that I think are interesting about them. Just that feeling mm -hmm. that there's this kind of like, you know, small and yet like quite spread out network of, um, I don't know, people who we have a kind of fellowship with, even though mm -hmm. we don't know. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's really awesome. And we got a particularly um, beautiful email this week from a person named Max in England who had this great line. It was a really awesome email. Um, but he described Stan as uh, a rock of good thoughts and futures um, and like this kind mm. of counter to this shitty time that we're living in. And I, yeah. you know, I think that like we began doing this podcast mostly because like we both um, love the Mars trilogy and you know, we love Stan's novels and we wanted to talk to each other and it seemed like we could like make it into a project. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and like, it is really, uh, you know, the, the sense of like how many people there are, not only to whom these novels are meaningful, but who actively use them to make meaning in their lives. And yeah. then generously like want to say to, you know, me and Matt, like, Oh, and I like the way you guys are doing that, too. I just, it's fantastic. So, uh, you know, thank, thanks, everybody. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, I haven't read that email because I don't check the email as regularly as you. So if you do email the show, you're more likely to get a response from Hillary. But, um, yes, I mean, like, that's a, a rock of good thoughts uh, and futures, I think, is, like, an excellent way to describe Stan and his novels and... Um, it just reminds me of how important, you know, the arts and literature are for, mm. I mean, life and mm -hmm. living, living, <laughs> living together. Um, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, I just, it, uh, you know, because, it, because I'm me, it just makes me sad also because you know everything is dying and like the humanities are being cut and and all that kind of stuff but um uh that's cool sorry i just brought the <laughs> tone way down again good good vibes good vibes central <laughs> no I, I mean i mean i'm you know i'm there i yes absolutely and it's like it's easy to be like pollyanna-ish about like these kinds of things but yeah. like I just it's also just, like I feel like we have to kind of appreciate you know particularly because I feel like when you think about like like Stan's novels like they're not easy you know right. like they're not about giving you like and they're not optimistic right but they are right. about like getting you to think about like what you might concretely be hopeful about right. um right. And that is, yeah, and that is like incredibly, that just seems like, yeah, we really got to hold on to that at this moment and, and activate it in the world too. Yeah. We well, I think it's interesting that you said they're not optimistic because um, I would, I would like, my impulse might be to say that they are optimistic, but I, I get what you're, what you mean by that because 
they do in terms of like thinking about science fiction as the realism of our times, right? Like mm. they do lay out a very starkly realistic view about the political and ecological uh, and like interpersonal problems that um, that we face under, you know, the regime of capitalism. Um, but then they project a, a future that is like not necessarily optimistic, but at least one that that follows certain possibilities that are mm -hmm. kind of imminent and latent within yeah, our yeah. current condition, right? So it they they provide an idea that like things don't have to be this way or the way the pessimistic way that you're looking at the future by you I mean me um is not like set in stone, right? Like there are choices, there are forces at play, there is contingency and chance um, that uh, that 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 uh, that we can't account for, um, and that we have to um, actively look for so that we can make the world that we want to live in, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I I feel like I think often I think that like optimism tells us something that is more like everything's going to be okay, right, you know? Right. Um, and it tells us a story about how, like, just like from, from where we are, we can like get ahead, you know, mm. and get what we want or something like that. Um, and, and I think that while, I, I mean, and this is actually, you know, this, um, uh, I feel like Years of Rice and Salt is like a really good and complicated example of this. I feel that like, you know, in Stan's novels, we, you know, we get, um, uh, we get to form sort of like hope instead of this kind of optimism about how we can keep going from where we are and it's going to be fine or better, you know, magically yeah. better. Um, instead we get this kind of hope that's formed out of the idea that like, you know, as human beings, we have certain kinds of innate possibilities mm. like, um, that can emerge and those innate possibilities are all like collective they're all about the way that we are able to be with and work with mm. others you know under all kinds of circumstances and in the face of like you know uh in the face of contingency in the face of change and and more than anything else in the face of like you know not knowing what's going to happen you know mm -hmm. that kind of like um yeah so i mean i think of like optimism has tells you like you can predict something right but like it is possible to like you know you need something like hope to keep driving you forward but hope doesn't necessarily necessarily say that you can predict it it just says that you like um can there is something that is possible right mm. there is possibility you know mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. something like that yeah um, yeah yeah anyway it's cool. a, so you know it is in its way it's a like real it is not only a gift to be reading this novel, mm. but yes. to be reading it with you, Matt. Yes, in community, <laughs> not just with me, but with our listeners who sometimes write us and emails with, or tweet at exactly. us at Podcast in, on Mars. In some, <laughs> in, in some. In summary. <laughs> so let's look at the War of the Asuras chapter, or just War of the Asuras, if you will, without the first uh, definite article. Um, not, not an optimistic chapter. I wasn't. Well, yes, I guess not. Um, um, <laughs> well, I mean, it ends with a group of people in prayer, you know, but um, we'll see. So 
I actually wasn't planning on doing this, but now I'm just looking at the map on the first page of Book Eight, War of the Asuras, mm-hmm. um, and I'm struck by the the um, the difference of this map, I guess, if you will, like the the way that this map um, does not is not familiar. Um, to people who are used to looking at maps, um, like conventional maps, especially Americans, but um, it it's um, it's a weird map. You know, it's twisted. It's it's got sort of Europe at the very center of the map, which we're probably accustomed to. But then um, Asia um, a, uh, sort of stretches all the way up to the north. Um, and then just to the right of Europe, you don't have like, I mean, I don't know, you have the the, the Atlantic Ocean, but really you have, um, you know, like the North American continent there. And then South America is like stretching out very weirdly to the bottom left. Um, and it kind of, I don't know, it really recalibrates your sense of, of, the globe, I guess, um, mm-hmm. in a kind of an interesting way where basically the opposite, like the Pacific ocean is like on the opposite side of this map. Like it's kind of excluded from it. Um, and so that the Atlantic looks more like just one big giant sort of lake between two islands or something. Um, and I don't, I don't know if that does anything for us in like kind of re you know, again, like recalibrating our minds in, in terms of like what we're about to encounter in this chapter. But, uh, it struck me as something worth, um, I don't know, worth, uh, noticing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, nothing, nothing like a map for, um, yeah. making you think about how much representations of things stand in for the things themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> right. for sure. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what, so this is a chapter about the long war essentially, and the long war seems to take the historical position in this novel that world war one, um, and world war two and kind of the entire long bloody 20th century take in our, you know, in our timeline, but this is much yeah. more like what if world war one were fought in Asia and it never ended? right? Like trench warfare just kept going, um, indefinitely. Um, and it's, it produced, and of course, you know, that it was fought between China and Dar, Dar al-Islam, the, basically like the, the kind of confederation of Islamic states or quasi states or whatever, um, over the, over the Asian step uh, essentially or i mean all throughout throughout asia um and then that kind of also is a major recalibration because it becomes you know very much a a a war between islam and buddhism or the kind of um uh yeah uh uh the uh uh, yeah the the yeah go ahead I'll stop talking. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, no, no. I think that, um, I mean, I think that's a great summary. And it's such an, it's such an interesting, like, if, um, I I feel like there are sections in this book, chapters, books within the book that, um, you know, you can feel like, uh, not precisely, but something relatively close to a sort of one-to-one correspondence between um, this timeline and our own 
timeline or between right. this history and our own history where those mm-hmm. things seem to line up. Um, and, uh, and something that is in, in, you know, uh, in line here in a kind of weird and disorienting way is that the, um, uh, that, uh, war between Darul Islam and China, um, gets talked about, I mean, this, this becomes quite complicated when we, we think about the position of the characters who were with, but gets talked about in a kind of clash of civilizations way, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the, so the representation, so the characters that were within this chapter are all Chinese and the, or are from the sort of like the Chinese empire, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and the representation that they are given of, of what Islam is, um, mm-hmm. is, you know, pretty straight out of the, you know, it's a barbaric desert religion mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that wants to enslave people, blah, 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 of the kind of um, clash of civilizations discourse that, like, of course, is present, like, you know, <laughs> for a long time for highly motivated um, reasons of empire in the 20th century, mm-hmm. and then has a real, like, revivified moment post 9-11, right? right? When that becomes this, like, supposed common sense to describe something. Yeah. So we have that kind of point, right, which is, like, quite, should be recognizable, this kind of, like, ideological formation. Um, but then quite disorienting here, and I think you already brought this out, is that, like, yeah, so we must be in the mid mid 20th century at this point, maybe even like past the midpoint of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're in a war um, that does seem to primarily have the features that we associate with World War One, trench warfare, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, mustard gas, mm-hmm. um, right, and um, just like the extraordinary expenditure, um, you know, the sacrifice of um, soldiers on the ground, right, right. Um, a, a, a war just like. Um, uh, in which, you know, like the life of like individual soldiers is counted for nothing. Right. Um, but then we also have that stretching out over an enormously long time frame in a way that's right. disorienting in and of itself, right? Temporality in this chapter, I think is really, really interesting. Yes. Um, and of course that this war and the form of war that we get here is coming like, uh, it's not mapping onto our timeline, right? We've like really kind of like, we've had a sort of divergence at some point like a pretty significant divergence Mm -hmm. um which is weird to kind of try to get your head around it's like easier to do this like oh i see so we're seeing the scientific revolution but it's taking place in right this other place right Right. and instead like here we have just seen this kind of like branching or forking Um, and that's not to say anything of how there's also some I think pretty good possibility that this whole war is taking place in the Bardo, or mm-hmm. at least we're getting a different kind of account of what the Bardo is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just picking up on uh, there's a number of things there, but to pick up on the the kind of the way that the that Islam is presented here is was is so striking, right? Because on the one hand, it makes a lot of sense that. Um, the Chinese soldiers or officers here who are the main characters would see the uh, see Islam and the Muslim fighters through this lens. But then it's also very jarring coming as it does in this book <clears throat> when we've already had 
you know, been intimately connected with other um, Muslim characters. And we know that like what the description of them in this chapter is doesn't line up with our with our knowledge of who they are, you know, certainly as individuals. Um, and that's something to look forward to for the next chapter, which is like the longest book of the book um, where our, all our characters will be um, Muslims in, living in like um, what, you know, Firanja, which is, you know, uh, otherwise known as Europe. Um, so that was a really interesting thing. There's like a long, there's a couple paragraphs, but one on 567 about um, the kind of ignorant fanatical disciples of a cruel desert cult that uh, they seem to be um, going up against. Um, but it's also, so um, the trench warfare thing and the continuation, what if World War One never ended? It's not just that, um, it's, uh, an extraordinarily long time because also with world war one, when that was actually happening, people were, you know, uh, on either side, were thinking this war may never end because these, right. these trenches are, are, you know, there's just no way to break through militarily. Both sides were kind of like, um, limited in the same with, to the same kind of technology, um, that they, that, that each other had. Um, and, but it's not just that because, uh, World War One compared to this happened over a vastly smaller amount of area. And here, yeah. like the, fr the front stretches all the way from like, um, the Arctic circle all the way down to, um, the, the, the Deccan is that, or is it the Deccan, whatever, it, um, the, the plains, the, 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 to India, right. right um, all right. the way South of the Himalayas. So, um, it's just this unimaginably, like not only temporarily very weird, but spatially extremely weird yeah. chapter yeah. too. And kind of dizzying, you know, at one point they're freezing in the Himalayas and then the next day they're in, they're sweating in like a, in like a tropical swamp, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Which all speaks to, to what you're saying too, of like, is this happening in reality or is this happening in the Bardo where such changes are, um, presumably uh, more uh, common or, or, or believable in a, in a, in a way. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it, so that, um, there's such an, so I kept thinking, um, I mean, it does feel like a lot of this chapter is, um, and you, you maybe know more about this than I do, but I feel like a lot of it is in the mode of a certain kind of war, war novel. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I was thinking, I was thinking about that before. All Quiet on the Western Front, obviously, mm, mm -hmm. um, or a little bit of like um, like Ford Maddox Ford's World War One. You know, uh, oh. you know. I mean, but but there are other there are like novels like this about Vietnam, and I'm sure I, about. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, I was thinking about earlier today. I had only I've only read um, uh, Going After Cacciato, a Tim O'Brien yeah. novel. Yeah. I read it years and years ago, but what I, little I remember of it, it, it is, it, it reminded me of this because, um, as I recall, it, it just is a kind of very dreamlike in terms yeah. of, of, of the way that the characters are move around in space. It's very weird and curious and, and, um, uh, cloudy dreamlike in a way. And, and that I think reminded me of this too. Yeah, yeah, and I was thinking the kind of the the sort of theme that I think runs from 
you know, at, at least from World War One novels through Vietnam mm-hmm. novels, and and I'm sure later than that too, that take that ha- that take place in part in the scene of battle. Yeah. One, you know, one of the kind of themes is is very much the um, the sense that like you know, it's not only like the place where the decisions are being made is like full of idiots, yeah. <laughs> although mm-hmm. it kind of seems like it is. And in this chapter, again, um, but also that that wherever it is, wherever command is, um, it's like so removed from the experience mm-hmm. of the people who are on the ground, um, you know, uh, whether directly in the trenches or positioned somewhere close to the trenches, like that... Um, there's no possibility of putting to for for the the soldier right there's no possibility of putting together like um any kind of like large scale sense of like logic or strategy right. um right. you know at best maybe like some maybe tactics maybe you know why you're doing a tactic but like mm-hmm. most of the time just like you know and so here in the war of the asuras like you know we might think okay so that's that is like maybe here that we are supposed to read that as a metaphor, a metaphor. Um, in other words, like where, where the command decisions are taking place and like where the motivation for this whole, like, yeah. you know, just like fucked up pointless mess, you know, yeah. where that is, is so distant that it might as well be happening among a bunch of like, you right. know, jealous demigods, which are what the Asuras are. Right. Um, although here also it's possible that in fact, like, you know, it's, that's not like a metaphoric way of thinking about like the stupidity and distance of like, you know, command central, that is actually what's going on, that we are in some level of the Bardo, um, and being forced to fight a war on behalf of a bunch of like actual demigods who Mm -hmm. we, we won't see, and we couldn't understand their motivations, especially well, even if we could see them, you know? Well, it almost feels like, I mean, yes, I mean, so, uh, you know, everything that you, yeah, I mean, just to say, like the, the 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 genre of the war novel, of the really good war novel, and and of the really good war film, although there are far fewer of those, is the you know relies on a certain amount of just complete insanity. That mm-hmm. like the things that they are being asked to do, and the thing and the ways that they are living, you know, on the front, are totally insane. Like they don't make any sense. The co- total irrationality of modern warfare, um, particularly. Um, or, or, you know, not least, um, in relation to the idea that, uh, you know, to the, to the fundamental contradiction between kind of like, um, individual sovereignty versus you're given an order from someone you've never met who's a thousand miles away to do something that, you know, um, is stupid and may lead to your death or the death of all your friends, um, and you go ahead and do it anyway because, be- because, uh, yeah. because you were ordered to, and so yeah. <clears throat> in this chapter, the metaphorical sort of relationship between the real world and the bardo and sort of the generals and the asuras, it just completely collapses, right? Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't matter if it's a metaphor or not. Like this is essentially and speaking of realism like this is how modern life under under capitalism seems to function for the person for the subject for the subject that it's being done to like why do you do the things that you do i don't know i just have to do them i'm compelled to do them um and i do them 
regardless of the fact of, of that I may know very well that they're the wrong things to do, or they may put my life in danger, or that they are just simply um, not something I want to do particularly, right? Um, yeah. And I think that that comes out, like the character of Quo and his relationship with Bai is the, those are the moments when that metaphor completely breaks down because there are moments when it's, it's unclear. It's very, it's impossible to tell if Bai is hallucinating asleep or actually having a visitation or if he's actually, or if, or if Quo is in fact telling the truth and Bai isn't in the real world, but he's actually in the Bardo. Um, so that th those moments are like moments of like radical ambiguity and like moments of the fantastic where like you just cannot, you know, the, the distinction, it, it, the distinction just simply doesn't obtain sort of whatever is happening to buy is what's happening. Um, and, yeah. And, yeah. and both are true at the same time in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think, I, yeah, I think that's really insightful. And I think that the, I mean, so one thing that we could think um, is that like, um, you know, the attempt to like create a, a narrative about like, just loosely put the experience of war. Right. Um, uh, you know, that that attempt like leads um, in one way or another forces certain kinds of like, um, uh, you know, um, like deformations of mm -hmm. realism, right? Mm -hmm. That one can't hold on to realism. I mean, if like, you know, at the, if like, you know, realist narrative is in general um, about the individual in uh, the, you know, his or her struggle with their circumstances, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The attempt to overcome circumstance to manage it or being weighed down, beaten down by it, right? circumstance being historical being relations with other people et cetera, et cetera, the relation to chance itself mm -hmm. like you know in the like um in the war story at least as it's revealed to like you know europeans uh you know like uh, anglos and americans in the first world war um is a place where like that kind of story like can't get can't get told right it mm -hmm. can't get told in the mode of realism um because at some point like um the relation between the actor and circumstance has become just like uh too un has become unbelievable right mm -hmm. um which i think is i think that's just like a very interesting uh, i think that's really interesting to think about and there are like um there are some science fiction novels about war particularly about vietnam um mm -hmm. that definitely like that make the kind of move to um, to imagine that like the sort of like the soldier's general disorientation and their need to, as you were just saying, like keep going and doing these things regardless of their ability to understand why they're doing them, mm -hmm. like that that is like, you know, part of some kind of like large scale, like conspiratorial plot of some mm -hmm. kind, right? Mm -hmm. An experiment being run by powers beyond, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of see why it gives over to... That, I mean, another version of that is, of course, like, um, In Gravity's Rainbow, where, like, uh, by Thomas Pynchon, where um, certain individual characters have, um, like, these apparently compulsive relations to the fact, um, to the fact of the war in such a way that they seem to be able to predict like where the bombs are going to be able to fall mm -hmm. and this is because of these like large scale kind of like conspiratorial networks that in fact 
run things Mm -hmm. and that we don't get that here of course you know because i feel like that sort of like conspiratorial thought is so much not the kind of thought that um that that robinson's novels have but we have this very interesting sense of like you know the powers that be are elsewhere um Mm -hmm. and we don't know if they're in control or if they're not in control um, and like you were saying about buy and quo, like we don't know if what we're seeing when when uh, uh, when buy encounters him is you know um, like PTSD, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is mm-hmm. the the traumatic after effects of trench warfare, you know, mm-hmm. um, or whether what we're seeing is like an actual an actual encounter and in, in many ways like it just does not seem to matter right. here you know i i think about um i was just thinking about Iwa's um response to by when he says i just saw quo i was just talking to him Iwa doesn't say oh no you didn't quo's dead you know he doesn't like try to rationalize it like Iwa, the eye the eye character who's always the scientist who's always the rationalist and the kind of uh who who's always looking for um uh, uh empirical data right he doesn't even bother with that. He just kind of, uh, but I mean, he believes him, like, <laughs> you know, yeah, or he, yeah. or he just accepts it tacitly. Like if you experience that, then that's what you experience because, and I, and there's nothing that he could kind of, you know, argue with him about. And there's no point on which he could argue with him there because everything that they're experiencing is so beyond belief. So why wouldn't that also be true in a way? Like that's never articulated, but it's just me like sort of extrapolating. Um, yeah, yeah. When he says that really interesting thing, this is from toward the end of the chapter, but I feel like because the chapter is so short, yeah, maybe it's jump, okay jump to just around. go there. But um, on 581, so um, this is in the um, this is in the sequence when by mm. um, there's a ton of interesting stuff in this sequence, mm-hmm. but when by encounters quote by the Bodhi tree, um, and uh, um. Uh, and then Quo leaves, and um, Bai says, um, what is it? Will they save the Bodhi tree? Don't worry about the tree, was said. They'll get a shoot from a daughter tree in Lanka. It's happened before. Best worry about the people. Wait, sorry, I have to make my cat stop chewing the plant. Louise, stop. Sorry. <laughs> um, best worry about the people and the cats. Uh, anyway, um, and then... Uh, they have quite an interesting exchange here. And Bai says, you know, I was just talking to Quo this very minute. Of course we come back, right? Which the B character is the one who is always saying, of course we're reborn. Of course Mm -hmm. we come back. I was just talking to Quo this very minute. Iwa gazed at him. You shouldn't try to hold on, Bai. This is what the Buddha learned right here. Don't try to stop time. No one can do it. Mm. Um, It's such an interesting response to given that in so many ways they seem to be in a kind of stopped time, you mm-hmm. know, both like moving, as you were saying before, like really rapidly through these different world-like landscapes and locations and environments. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, not getting anywhere, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> both like supposedly on some kind of front, but the front doesn't really seem like it makes progress of any sort. Mm-hmm. Um you know, they seem to be in this kind of stalled time. Mm-hmm. So Iwa means something else when he says, don't try to stop mm-hmm. time. Other other than like, we can't, you know, he 
I, yeah, anyway, I think that exchange is like really intriguing and the, the kinds of ideas about time that come out of this, um, uh, that come out of this chapter, I think are, are quite interesting. Um, yeah, that part is really, in, I had that part, I have a lot of things marked in this chapter. Um, don't try to stop time. No one can do it. Sharpness remains. I tell you, he was cutting me up the same as always. We have to try to accept change and change leads to death. And then through death, by said as cheerfully as he could, he missed <laughs> Quo. I, Iwa considered what Bai had said with a look that seemed to say he had been hoping that a Buddhist at the Bodhi tree would perhaps have had something more helpful to say. But what could you say? The Buddha himself had said it. Suffering is real. You have to face it, live with it. There is no escape. This to me just reminded me of, um, or made me think of, um, <clears throat> you know, how weird this book is in the context of the moment that it's written. Um, it, you know, or that's published like right after 9-11 at this this moment of sort of incipient, precipitant decline of the American empire, mm -hmm. um, which I think, you know, uh, obviously is super important to consider right now. But uh, it made me think of um, something, uh, I think a prof I, I learned at some point in <laughs> at some class in college, uh, which was very illuminating to me, and I am I'm always I'm I, I still wrestle with it and and think it's really important. Which is that Americans don't handle death very well. Americans are you know supposedly preternaturally you know uh, inclined to be happy or to be optimistic or to think that everything is going. I mean, we live in a state of total delusion, right? And death mm -hmm. is not something that we we uh acknowledge very well and and this chapter and the whole and the novel as a whole um are really interesting because of course there are no americans in this in this book right right there's no quote unquote western civilization there's no there's very marginal christianity at all so all those weird things all those weird discourses white supremacy that 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 uh, create the ideology of Americanism that has so much trouble sort of dealing with with death are not here. And then that allows the novel to confront us with this, with death repeatedly over and over and over again mm. um, as something that, you know, um, you have to, you know, you have to accept and that change happens and, and, and change leads to death. And, and I think it's just really worth sort of meditating on in, um, in today's context, you know, like the make America great again thing seems, you know, promotes some idea of some past that was that where everything was good and perfect. Um, right. And we know that that's complete bullshit. Um, but then what's so discouraging and, you know, we shouldn't talk too much about like uh, politics of the minute is like Biden seems to also be running on a like make America great again platform except like his his great again was like the obama era which is even mm. more like obviously like not <laughs> like at least the 50s are like clouded in like the nostalgia that reagan and the reagan era created for them like the the nostalgia there is no nostalgia for the for the obama administration that has any kind of like you know like uh textual or ideological underpinning there aren't like there's no back to the future that's set in the uh, in in the Obama administration, right? Um, <laughs> well, so there's just, the West Wing, right? <laughs> the, yeah, the West Wing, which is before the Obama administration, so it was already projecting yeah. a, a, a well, great exactly. future that that we already lived through. So why not go back to it? But anyway, um, uh, 
I think that, yeah, anyway, the like kind of the reiteration of death over and over again um, is really important for the novel as a whole, but for the book, for this, for this book, for the War of the Asuras in particular, because of, of just, you know, the nature of the war that's depicted. I mean, I, so I think this is a really interesting thing to think about in this chapter. Um, uh, I'm trying to, oh, on 577. Um, uh, so I have some thoughts from what you were saying that maybe I, I'll try to string together, although they'll probably just trail off into nothing. But um, That'll be a first for this podcast. Trailing off into nothing. Yeah, we never yeah. do that. Um, yeah. So uh, 577, uh, the Muslims were in full flight, the Indians close on their heels, and the Chinese could only follow the two faster armies through the fields of forests, uh, dot, dot, dot. Uh, dead bodies on the ground in knots already bloating. The full meaning of embodiment made manifest here by its opposite disembodiment death, departure of the soul, leaving behind so little, a putrefying mass, stuff like what one found in a sausage. <laughs> Nothing human about it, except for here or there, a face undestroyed, sometimes undisturbed, an Indian man lying on the ground, for instance, staring sideways, but utterly still not moving, not breathing, the statue of what must have been a very impressive man. Um, and by, uh, by had to say a charm to be able to walk around him. And then they were in a zone where the land itself was smoking like the dead zone of Gansu. Um, uh, and, and by thinks back about that, that dead man. But I think that the, um, that idea of the meaning of embodiment being revealed only um, in seeing the this kind of grotesquery of mm -hmm. the dead is quite interesting. Um, so, mm. you know, um, I mean, and, and it has everything to do with the way in which one of the kind of, one of the things that is, I think, brought out a lot in this chapter is that in... Uh, in Chinese Buddhism, with its sort of like cross-pollination with Taoism, um, you know, the sort of um, everything comes out of observation mm -hmm. of the natural world, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we, you know, we see a kind of like, um, he here, as we saw, you know, in earlier chapters with like Sufism and with other variants of Islam, a kind of like harmony between certain kinds of religious experiences and religious accounts and the emergence of certain kinds of natural scientific accounts, right? right. Here we see a kind of reverse of that, right? That um, this form of Chinese Buddhism that we're thinking about um, uh, emerges out of, out of observation, out of attention, um, right, out of attention right, right. to the world. Um, and 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 of course, with the sort of like you know, we I th I think it was in the previous chapter where we get the the line about um, you know Taoism's um, materialism, right? I mean that for Taoism, you know, there isn't the sort of like um, the the body and the soul are always in relation to each other, um, you know. Um, not kind of separable from each other. So a very different model of what it means to be al alive, <laughs> right? right? Um, and, and of what the materiality of life um, suggests or implies. So I think that's a, that's a really interesting aspect of thinking about death here. And we might think, um, uh, you know, um, one that sort of follow up on you saying like this is you know here we have the scene of the battlefield but in any kind of like more abstract account of it that could be produced by any of these characters it's not going to be on the kind of like um 
you know, Christianized the Christianish maybe terms of like uh, the the Western European Anglo American mm-hmm. observer of battlefield death. Right, right. And then the other thing that I wanted to just pick up on because I, I again I think this is a really intriguing thing in this chapter is you know if we take the idea that they're in the bardo here quite seriously then in some ways they are neither alive nor dead mm-hmm. at this point right but but in a in a kind of mid process um mm-hmm. and there's nonetheless as we've seen throughout and I have no idea whether this is like really um you know part of uh uh like um officially part of the idea of what goes on in the bardo but like you know one of the things that we've seen is like even the bardo is a site of struggle right um and like the jati like have to get themselves together as much there um Mm -hmm. as they do um when they are um in their living lives right Mm -hmm. but like if this is all, you know, like not only, you know, not only is there a sort of sense that like time has been kind of suspended because of this endless war, um, um, if it's also the case that here, like they are kind of suspended between between being alive and being dead, right? So that there becomes this possibility of, um, yeah. So they so that then we have to read like the kind of. Um, I don't know. Then we we might think about like how to think about suffering and death in the chapter like slightly differently mm-hmm. if they are indeed between two worlds or if the space between worlds um is like also one ruled by suffering. I mean that's such an interesting idea, mm-hmm. right? You know, like mm-hmm. because it's like it's not just that like because um because we are alive um and sentient um we experience suffering and also have the capacity for compassion Mm -hmm. it's also like um we would share suffering when we were in this kind of like indeterminate state neither alive nor dead you know not being punished because we were bad like sent to hell or being rewarded because we were good like sent to heaven um but still like still in it still in the struggle you know Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah i think that um i my impulse is to relate this to the recurrence of theater and theatrical imagery mm-hmm. in the book um very frequently the they they refer to stage sets uh, or the dr- stage set from the dream theater that's on the bottom of 564 mm-hmm. um over on where was it on 572 they talk about um Iwa talks about the 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 basically the plate tectonics. Um, um, uh, India was was a ramming ship that had slammed into Asia and plowed under it, pushing all the way under Tibet and doubling the height of that land, but dipping down there almost to sea level. Bai shook his head as this geomor- geomorphic fancy, not wanting to think about the ground as moving like big ships. Um, but now that quo had been wrong and that he was still alive and not in the bardo where of course lands could slip around like the stage sets they were <laughs> so that there's this this you know um again the collapsing of the difference uh between the bardo and the real world um that like that difference doesn't really mean anything i mean maybe particularly in the context of a novel but just in the in a more cosmic sense of that this that that we um, are acting out the action of a play that nobody wrote and that we are not the main characters of that is, you know, mm-hmm. cast of cast of thousands in a certain way. Um, 
And I think that like that also sort of goes along with a kind of particularly American, Western, modern, capitalist ideological view that you are the main character of history or that you're the main character of your life or something like that. Yeah, Whereas yeah. Um, here, um, there isn't one single main character throughout this novel. And then the main characters that there are all take on different masks on uh, different roles at different times. Um, and um, play, you know, perform different functions uh, in relation to each other and to, you know, other characters. Um, yeah. I mean, that's just making me think that the, um, at the beginning we were talking a little bit about how, or at least my, my sense of this chapter is that there, it, it, it has some estranging effects in that it feels that we have to recognize this real, uh, um, branching away of of this history from our history here um which of course we've had to recognize in all kinds of ways it just to me this is a chapter where that you know it feels like there's a great distance or something mm. um and i was thinking while you were talking that well yeah and one of the things that um one of the things that we get out of um this version of the war narrative um is that like uh it's not just that like war um it's not just that war is like harmful at the level of like individual life or you know yeah, can right. like oh, yeah. stand in stand in for like existential crisis right you know mm -hmm, like which mm -hmm. i think that like you know the sort of like modernist account of war you know, it's hard to tell the difference between saying like war fucks you up and mm -hmm. saying like I'm telling this war story because like it gives me a way to think about like existential crisis, right? Right. Um, but also at the level of history here, like I think there is a kind of implicit challenge to the idea um, that either that war is or that war must be the kind of engine of history, right. right? That it, you know, like war plunges us into as, you know, so many stories about World War One. I, I mean, I mean, stories told by historians about World War One, mm -hmm. you know, that it plunges us into a kind of modernity, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and some of that is because like, we have seen that, like, I mean, I think, you know, throughout, we see just like, uh, whatever it is that we might think is modernity is like kind of coming from all over the place. Right. right. Um, but also because here, like we can't mistake war. I think this is kind of like my read of this chapter is that we can't mistake this war for like an event, right? Like things happen mm. in it, but it doesn't seem to have, I mean, and it's going to end. <laughs> spoiler, spoiler alert it will end right, right, right? right um but its extension and its ability to just seem to be a war that takes place in the a supernatural war right um it's like just like constant ongoingness you know it seems like it takes it away from being eventful right and like i mean right. you know it, it seems like really you know a, one of the significant absences here is of course like the atomic bomb, right? right? I mean, like that, you know, that story. I mean, we just, uh, you know, we just passed the Hiroshima Nagasaki anniversary. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like, I think there still is, you know, a version of the story of 
not just the Second World War, but of the kind of sequence from the first to the Second World War right. of that being ended, right, by this, by technology, the technology right. that was the atomic bomb and being ended like precisely in an event, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, it, you know, and, you know, and thus it precipitates us, whether we like feel bad about it or feel triumphant about it, that precipitates us into like the post-war period or something right. like that. Um, and like, that's not here, you know? Right. Right. Um, that, that version of the destruction of worlds isn't here. I mean, we have the crazy, like, you know, um, the Islamic army is like taking the top off Mount Everest, yes. not, yeah, yeah. not, not called Everest here in one of the most insane, like yeah. crazy images. Um, but you know, like that's it, it, that, that is a different, that's a different story. That's a different thing that's happening. Right. Um, and it is not a thing that, that says like, oh yeah. And then it, like it ends because there's an event and like mm -hmm. a massive, uh, you know, agreement. Um, I mean, and I feel like that, this idea of like the war that just goes like on and on and on, like, I mean, that should, that speaks to us a lot now, like way, you know, probably, I mean, I think that was, you know, there was some truth to the sort of um, Korea into Vietnam yeah. <laughs> kind of sequence. But for sure, like, you know, from the 90s, like until now, like we just live in a country that is constantly at war yeah. um, and which nobody seems like half of the time, 99% of the time, no one pays any fucking attention to that being true. Yeah. Um, you, you know, nobody has any story about how those things will end, despite, like, presidents occasionally declaring either that they have or that they will. Right. Um, yeah, anyway. I, yeah, I mean, I think that this chapter, to me, also did make me think about the the kind the the ways in which we could look at the 20th century as an, a, um, an unending series of not an unending series, like an unending story of just war and like war. The, yeah. The, yeah. War in general, like the way that world war one sort of ended, but then a new realm, a new round of economic warfare was waged against Germany that like, you know, more or less led directly to the, the Nazis taking power. And then, um, you know, the Nazis, you know, rebuilding the, the, the arsenal and, um, fighting happening in in other places in the world. I mean, you think about the Russian Revolution and the way that that was tried. Uh, you know that um, that uh, the it was tried to uh, be undone by Western powers, um, and then uh, straight through to World War II, and then right past World War II. Maybe not in like quote unquote hot warfare or direct combat, but. Um, you know, proxy wars, um, just our, our kind of idea about war, um, partly because of like the movies and the novels and the mm -hmm. culture around mm -hmm. it. And also like the atomic bomb probably too, it's just sort of, um, really limited in, you know, like that, that, that a, a much more expansive understanding of what war is, um, would be required to understand how war was prosecuted throughout the 20th century, not just, using you know guns and bombs and all that stuff but using like the power of finance and economics to like really yeah, decimate, yeah. decimate populations not to mention the fact of you know not you know not to neglect the fact of like vietnam and the way that that war still continues to this day in the unexploded ordinance and the poisoned you know ecos ecosystem and all that kind of all that stuff right um it this chapter really made me think of that because um 
also, like, as you mentioned, like, we're in a country that's been at war continuously, like, you know, no child born after 2001 has, you know, lived a, a moment when the U.S. hasn't been at war. But again, you wouldn't know it um, if you just lived in America. If you lived in right. Iraq or Afghanistan, you would really fucking know it. Mm. But you would, uh, you would not know it uh, if you just if you just lived here and just, you know... Um, did what the TV told you to do or knew what the TV told you about. Um, and then also like, just to say one more thing is the way that this chapter, yes, explains, demonstrates that war doesn't just happen between people, but it also is a war of, and especially modern warfare, um, a war of people on the environment itself, you know, right? Like yeah. just the fourth paragraph of this chapter is about how, um, it looked like the steps or it had before the war. Now the whole width of the corridor from mountains to desert and the whole length from Ningxia to Jiangguan was torn to mud. The trenches had moved back and forth Li by Li for over 60 years. In that time, every blade of grass and clod of dirt had been blasted into the sky more than once. What remained was a kind of disordered black ocean, ringed and, ring, ringed and ridged and cratered, as if someone had tried to replicate in mud the surface of the moon. Every spring, weeds made brave efforts to return and failed. The town of Ganzhou had once stood near this very spot, parallel, paralleling the Zhou River. Now there was no sign of either. Land pulverized to bedrock. Ganzhou had been home to a thriving Sino-Muslim culture. So this wasteland they observed, stark in dawn light, was a perfect ideograph of the long war. Mm. There are these mm. like moments of representation in the novel, like so ideograph and stage sets. And at one point, um, they are, uh, there's a moment when um, there's sort of like rebuilding some railroad tracks or something on page 555. Um uh, as they're repairing railroad tracks uh, under cover of darkness. Arc lamps turned the night brilliant silver streaked by white like a ruined photo negative in that chemical glare. In that And in that chemical glare, men scurried about with picks and shovels and hammers and wheelbarrows as after any other disaster, but speeded up as film sometimes was. No more trains arrived. So um, good news that phot photography and film have been invented. So that's good for me as a film <laughs> scholar. But also it's like... That's very good. It places this, the war, you know, and the world as, you know, objects of vision in a, in a major way. And what's interesting here, just before that passage I, I quoted, is they describe how women and children are also now fighting the war and that um, Iwa will every once in a while, or maybe Bai will look at the women. Uh, yes, Bai. Bai was young and the only women he knew were those from the brothels of Langzhou. He had, he had felt comfortable, uncomfortable in their presence as if dealing with members of another species, worn creatures who regarded him uh, as from across a gaping abyss, looking as far as he could determine guardedly and guardedly appalled and accusatory as if thinking to themselves, you idiots have destroyed the whole world. But now that they were in the trenches, they were just soldiers like any others, different only in that they gave by an occasional sense of how bad things had gotten. There was no one, there was no one in the world left now to reproach them. So this all, I mean, like what I find interesting here about, about what I'm laying out is like how everyone is conscripted or recruited or cast 
into the role of a soldier in this world. Like there's nobody left to even spectate, like stand outside and look objectively at, the, yeah. at what they're doing um, and say and, and like approve or disapprove. There's no one left to approach them. You know, that this type of warfare recruits every single person and makes every single person complicit and a partic- an active participant. And it's so interesting because I often think about like how one reason our our politics are so fucked up is that we are encouraged to be spectators at all times. Like we're, you know, like the politics is basically sports that we, that we, that we sit back and spectate on things way too much. And that the solution to that would become an active participant. And here it's exactly the opposite because there's nobody, there's nobody left outside to look in and say, this is bad. You shouldn't be doing this. Now everybody is constricted conscripted to be to participate on this stage the stage set of war that has been completely obliterated and 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 decimated um so it's kind of interesting like kind of uh play with that dynamic of like sort of action and like spectatorship or something yeah i mean there's like there there's no witness here um and if there's and if there's a tribunal right like to issue judgments on whether this was like good or not like part of the problem in this part of the problem for buy and quote and iwa although iwa doesn't seem to buy into this idea in this chapter you know part of the problem is like they're not getting themselves in front of the tribunal they're just like stuck in this like constant constant ongoing battle right you know Mm -hmm. like to be to be reborn into a different world into a different state you know like will require the moment of ju- will require right. the moment of judgment right? right will require having being able to not only to show but to have actually like lived in accordance with like with right living and with compassion um and and with each other and like they are not in a position here where they can do that you know there is mm-hmm. i mean the the bardo sequences end with some kind of relationship to the moment of judgment whether it's the attempt to defy it or to run away from it or to fool it or whatever whatever it is but here there is you know that has disappeared or if that's taking place like it's just like so remote mm-hmm. you know like they're so alienated from it um i think it's really like that what what you were saying about this sort of like the large scale environmental destruction which of course gets like, you know, condensed in that idea of, um, what is the real name of Everest? Oh, Chumalunga. Uh, that, um, you know, um, that has a kind of like, uh, this very close relationship to that, that passage about seeing the corpse, Mm -hmm. right. And knowing only knowing what embodiment is when, (laughs) when you see disembodiment, Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's a way in mm-hmm. which like uh, the world's specificity here gets revealed by its kind of its absence. I was mm-hmm. also thinking about how this chapter is, I think, in a really interesting way. It's also a repetition of the very first chapter, um, which is also a mass warfare chapter. Right. Um, uh, right. Um, and and also features um, the B character um, mm-hmm. uh, as as a like kind of mid level um, you know mm-hmm. mid level soldier in an army. Um, it also features this mode of having to travel through a space which is maybe just like traveling across like you know um, 
you know, from one geographic or geological scene to another, um, but maybe also he speculates is a movement between worlds. Um, and like there he's, you know, he's completely solitary and we get that great like Rousseauian scene of him meeting the man and they have their like communication mm -hmm. slash miscommunication and eating right. together. Um, and here he's not solitary, um, but instead, as you were like pointing to, like uh, he's like amid this like uncountable mass, which is almost like a kind of, uh, you know, becomes almost the same as being solitary, you right. know, like um, anyway, I think that's an, you know, so the sort of the structures um like i haven't mapped this out but i think they're that the sort of structures of kind of like repetition or, or revisiting between the books of the novel are quite are an interest are an interesting like replay or different play on the idea of rebirth you know mm -hmm. um uh as well as again like this kind of pushing back on the idea that like the way that you tell a historical story is by telling about like you know, either progress or regress, right? right you know, yeah, so that yeah. your your alternate history could be the story of regress, right? Right. Where we got progress, you know, in right. this version, you know, we had the Nazis are in power in the United States, right? Or <laughs> right. whatever it might be, right? Um, yeah. I think with the the cast of characters in this chapter, you know, it's it's particularly abrupt difference from the previous chapter where they were in Travancore and sort of real, you know, the age of great progress, things seem to be getting better. Um, and, and also the characters themselves seem to have, you know, be able, you know, acquire an increasing level of kind of familiarity and recognition and ability to work together. And here, the three characters, you know, although they're together, they, they don't, there's not a lot of necessarily like harmony among the group. It's not that they're like enemies at all, but um, they they tend to have kind of, they tend to be having their own conversations in a certain way. Like Iwa will go and get information from the wire, from the telegraph wire and come back with it. And Quo is kind of ranting and raving and Bai is sort of just biding his time, like sitting, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, just I mean, on five, he's introduced as um, ready to get get it over with. He had lost his heart for this life. He just doesn't, you know. This is this is this is no good. So they they both feel, they all three feel, you know, although they're together and there seems to be any kind of an affection there, they're not they're not the most cohesive group that we've seen of these three throughout the course of the novel. Yeah. So there's there's that interesting. Um, so it's here. I mean. It, We've talked before about, um, uh, you know, as the novel goes on, the characters come to recognize each other increasingly and in different mm -hmm. kinds of ways. But here, the I think the only sort of recognition of their ties to each other comes when between Bai and Quo, and Quo seems to be technically dead or more dead than Bai. <laughs> right. That if they're both dead, Quo is somehow more dead, um, and <laughs> um, and then he uh, so on five seventy nine. Um, right. Uh, uh, so by by says at the bottom of five seventy eight, I may not be a great leader like you, but I've done some good things, and they haven't made a bit of difference. There seem to be no rules of Dharma that actually pertain. 
Quo sat down next to him, crossed his legs, and made himself comfortable. Well, who knows? I've been thinking these things over myself this time out in the Bardo. There's been a lot of time, believe me. So many have been tossed out here at once that there's quite a waiting line. Uh, it's just like the rest of the war, a logistical nightmare. And I've been watching you all struggle on, batching against things like moths in a bottle. And I know I did it too. And I've wondered, I've thought sometimes that maybe it went wrong back when I was Kime and you were Butterfly, a little girl we all loved. Do you remember that one? And Bai doesn't remember, but he like retell, he retells it. Um, uh, and... Uh, he tells the story of, of uh, rescuing um, rescuing Butterfly from uh, potential sacrifice. Um, and uh, it seemed to me then that my so much greater power had a meaning to it, that our superiority in weapons came out of a general superiority of thought that included a superiority of morals, that we were better than they were. I strode back down to the ships and sailed west, still feeling that we were superior beings like gods to those horrid savages. And that's why Butterfly died. You died to teach me I was wrong, that though we saved her, we'd killed her too, that that feeling we had striding through them uh, as if they're worthless dogs was a poison that would never stop spreading in men who had guns until all the people like Butterfly who lived in peace without guns were dead, murdered by us, and then only men with guns would be left and they would murder each other too as fast as they could in the hope that it wouldn't happen to them until the human world died and we all fell into this Preto realm and then to hell. So our little Jotty is stuck here with everyone else no matter what you do. Not that you have been notably effectual, I must say again, by speaking of your tendency to towards credulous simplicity, gullibility, and general soft-hearted namby-pamby ineffectiveness. Hey, Bai said, not fair. I've been helping you. I've just been going along with you. So, I mean, you know, this, I feel like this is the version of, like, retelling the story of their lives um, that is the most intent on saying, like, this was the lesson and mm -hmm. this is the outcome, right? right. You know, like... Um, uh, uh, I think that like, um, quo, you know, it maybe is like all too clear to quo, right. Or like maybe like his way of like thinking like this, this episode in our past, um, meant absolutely this thing. And it's brought us to this particular condition. Mm -hmm. Like it's not, you know, like, um, uh, it, you know, in some ways, he seems to be right in, like, the critique he produces of, like, how they did think that they were superior, right. you know, and how they were willing to use their arms. But is there really a direct line to what's happened now? I mean, and we don't, we don't know, you know, mm. and the role that, like, Butterfly plays is, like, the sacrifice to teach the lesson seems mm -hmm. like quite a complicated role <laughs> also. <laughs> also. Right. Well, it's also like a matter of interpretation, right? He is giving his interpretation. It does seem like a, a you know, an interpretation, especially if you're like a gun control advocate, then <laughs> that you would like find find sympathetic. Also, like, um, I mean, just one thing too. Bai does remember when um, when there's the giant flood. He remembers. Yes. That he's de he and that's that's with him and Iwa. Um, you were there too. I wonder if it was meant for us. So. There, there is that moment of recognition of their of their jati, but Iowa Iwa right. doesn't doesn't share it with him. But um, yeah, the men with guns thing is really interesting, and I think it's um, well. First of all, it's reminiscent of Zardoz, as I'm sure you recognized. Uh, uh, <laughs> a real ur text, you know. Yeah. Zardoz speaks to you, his chosen ones. 
uh, important film. Um, but uh, uh, the, the just the role of guns in like Robinson's idea of social change would just really be worth a very close examination, you know, like throughout the books, you know, you have guns, uh, guns under the table in one of the Mars uh, books. And in, just in the prior chapter um, where he, uh, the, the, um, the Kerala had convinced the Buddhist monks to like make gunpowder and like mm -hmm. do research into guns. Um, and the, the Buddhist monks are able to justify it to themselves because the, the Kerala likes laws. Um, it seems like a really, you know, rich area to um, think about a lot, a lot more about like what role the, the violence plays in all of this. Um, I mean, in addition, going back to the point of about, about butterfly right that it is this story that kaim is telling and this lesson that he has extracted from this moment um in their prior prior lives um to to produce a sort of sort of moral lesson that can like hope to explain what's happening in this like not real not bardo space they find themselves during the war of the asuras yeah i mean and it feels like here he really in in that narration and then this also seems to be kind of born out in the the that sort of clash of civilization stuff we were talking about too in the war that we see in this chapter it's like the guns the guns going along with this particular like uh you know this particular like colonialist imaginary right, right? right. in which they're savages mm -hmm. um and and even in his kind of re-narration of it like he can't um he doesn't quite allow um uh, allow the possibility that there was any agency on the other <laughs> on the other side in that right, scene, yeah. right? Hmm. You know, so there is a way in which the sort of even the self-critical story like reproduces some of the sense that like agency is all on the one side. But in any case, I think we see the like, you know, the binding together of um, you know uh, one a version of thinking about human beings that thinks about them as like. Um, you know, completely replaceable or like mm -hmm. simply a matter of like numbers, mm -hmm. which, you know, gets called out here in, in, uh, Quo saying like, and you know, things are kind of a mess in the Bardo because there's so many fucking people here now. It's taking forever to get through, which was also like, um, you know, that, uh, that idea that like, uh, mass death will crowd the after <laughs> afterlife, mm -hmm. um, is an idea that comes up like in, um, uh, in like the in like nineteenth century in the nineteenth century in our timeline, mm. interestingly, like I think it's a very interesting like kind of way to register a sort of fear about people. But the big thing seems to be right that like there's some version of what a person is in which a person is simply like you know a body to be put to work, right? And right. while while here we don't see that in terms of capital, we absolutely see it in terms of like the imperial war machine, right? Um, that that goes along with a like racializing racist and colonialist view of the world in which there are superior kinds of people and inferior kinds of people and that also goes along with some kind of sense that like um 
you know, uh, in order to like win a war or gain territory, it doesn't matter if you fuck that territory up (laughs) irretrievably, right? right? Because like, there's no light. You don't think that like um, the earth is alive or has Mm -hmm. any life to it, right? Mm -hmm. Much in the same way you don't think that like um, people have any kind of life that counts, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so there's this like necropolitics that Mm -hmm. runs this, you know, that runs this here. And I, and that, um, uh, and, you know, in some ways, like it's worse than to think of or have the moment of thinking like, but this is taking place in the real world and not in the Barda, right? Mm-hmm. You know, because those are descriptions, you know, just like uh, of the way in which empires, including our own, like mm-hmm. do wage war. And like mm-hmm. you were saying before, when we were talking about the endlessness of, war like it's easy to deny it or not see it or not think about it from one side and from the other side it is what daily life is Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. um and here we get the kind of like um yeah we're sort of we're sort of in in the in the middle of like um uh in the middle of war as daily life or daily life under this under these kinds of like ideological formations being revealed to be war so i think it's really like flashing back to the kerala who we talked about you know mm-hmm. both his kind of like as both a utopian figure and like this figure that we have certain kinds of ambivalence about like you know what are the links between like wanting to have the best armaments and Mm -hmm. in one way or another also being sure that you are a superior kind of person from a superior race of persons right Mm -hmm. you know um like what is the difference i mean there are obvious differences between saying let's make the world into a garden and let's decimate the world in order to have like a stretch more territory yeah but at the same time right like you know they part you know they participate in some uh version of thinking that nature is something out there not in and through and of us right yeah i mean so so many things to pick up on there but yeah i mean i think there's one there's a moment when um and maybe it's when bai is trying to meditate about or trying to figure out you know what are they actually fighting for right on 573 and then it goes into 574 about the indian army who they who the Chinese army finally hook up with the, the Travancore league, you know, they, they hook Mm. up with them. Um, and, uh, you know, so Bai is sort of trying to think about what the, what meaning is, um, was, uh, was fighting the war on a level where it might actually mean something might have some use, might have, it might be a better, might be a matter of changing people's souls in their pure existence outside the world where they might be capable of change, where they might learn what was important and return to life next time with new capacities in their hearts, with new goals in mind. What mo- what might those be? What were they fighting for? It was clear what they were fighting against, against fanatical slaveholding reactionaries who wanted the world to stand still in the equivalent of the Tang or Sung dynasties, absurdly backward and bloody religious zealots. Again, we have to think assassins with no scruples who fought crazed on opium and ancient blind beliefs um, against all that, certainly. But for what? So all the stuff we're fighting against, we have to bear in mind that that, you know, we have different views on that in this throughout the novel. And um, but it certainly like, uh, you know, resonates with a kind of like idea of especially in the early 2000s, what Islam was all about. Right. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. 
to an American audience. Uh, what the Chinese were fighting for, by decided, was clarity. For whatever else was, for whatever else it was, that was the opposite of religion. For humanity, for compassion, for Buddhism, Taoism, and Confucianism, the triple st- strand that did so well in describing a relationship to the world, the religion with no God, with only this world, also several other potential realms of reality, mental realms, and the void itself, but no God, no shepherd ruling with the drooling strictures of a demented old patriarch, again, a, a, a kind of caricature. Um, Everything holy, sacred, part of the Godhead. For yes, there was a God, if by that you meant only a transcendent, universal, self-aware entity that was reality itself, the cosmos, including everything, including human ideas and mathematical forms and relationships. That idea itself was God and evoked a kind of worship that was attention to the real world. Again, love as a form of attention we got from Aurora, Mm -hmm. a kind of natural study. Chinese Buddhism was the natural study of reality and led to feelings of devotion just from noting the daily leaves, the colors of the sky, the animals seen from the corner of the eye, um, just out of curiosity and because it seemed to help them see even more clearly. And so they made instruments to see farther in and farther out, higher yang, deeper yin. But then on the next, on 576, so then we have like that kind of you know we were asking too like a last week or a couple weeks ago like what motivates these empires like if it's not capital if it's just empire or if it's just the expansion of the chinese bureaucracy like what are the ideologies that undergird this kind of like global struggle between these empires and um so that's like Bai's answer to like what China stands for is this like is this clarity, right? Um, but then like what gives one side the edge or not isn't addressed in this novel about like, you know, uh, the command over like war material or like the US coming in with its vast resources in World War Two or World War One and like saving the day or or, you know, uh, uh, the Russians fighting with like communism on the mind to, to defend communism against fascist Germany. We don't have any of that. We have like something else, you know, that that's some, you know, something unspecified, but then also this attempt to like explain it in, in terms of these sort of conflicting, you know, wars of civilization, but then in come the Indians on 576. Um, they, they, they do this impossible thing of like fighting inside in the monsoon, you know, like this is, foolhardy you wouldn't fight in the monsoon but no they had among all their other accomplishments perfected war in the rain these were not chinese taoist buddhist rationalists by and iwa agreed not the fourth assemblage of military talent but wild men of all manner of religion even more spiritual than the muslims as the muslims religion seemed all bluster and wish fulfillment and support of of tyranny with its father god the indians had a myriad of gods some elephant-headed or six-armed even death was a god both female and male life nobility there were gods for each each human quality deified which made for a monkey a motley godly people very ferocious in war among many other things great cooks very sensual people sense tastes music color in their uniforms detailed art it was all right there in their camps to be seen men and women standing around a drummer seeing the women tall and big breasted <laughs> big eyed and big eyebrowed awesome women really arms like a woodsman's and fit and filling all the sharpshooter regiments of the indians yes one indian adjutant had said in tibetan women are better shots women from trevancore especially they start when they are five that may be all there is to it start boys at five and they would do as well um, it's just like so much to chew over, but like, 
these 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 like war of this war of like multiple civilizations mm -hmm. and then multiplicity within the civilizations like the more multiple you get inside of them the better fighters they are the more pluralistic they are the the more the better fighters they are but then also you have this you know bringing right back down to reality why are they better fighters because we train them from the age of five to be sharpshooters right like th there's just so much going on there between like ideology and the kind of material practice and the kind of uh weird mix between those that kind of result that that kind of like result in the in who's winning this war and why or the imagination of that yeah yeah and i mean you know again here the by the the b character in some ways is the is the true believer you know right. like i mean the account that he gives of chinese buddhism which has that great um line you, you read that uh noting the daily leaves the colors of the sky the animals seen from the corner of the eye the movements of chopping wood mm. and carrying water which might actually carry us back mm -hmm. to to I best of all I liked the years of rice and salt right? right as well as to like you know the long long time image of like what it is to be proletarian the the hewers of wood and the carriers of water right mm -hmm. um you know so one of the things that I think is like really um that we've talked about before but that I think comes out interestingly here is that like you know um he um you know, he believes in this as like this, this is the specific quality of Chinese Buddhism. This is what Chinese Buddhism is. Um, and of course, that variant of Buddhism, like, partly appears because, um, you know, uh, you get the like, translation, first translations of the Buddhist texts by people who are Taoist, by Taoist mm. monks, right? So like, already in like those earliest Chinese translations, you're getting this like cross-pollination, right? And Confucianism is there too. So these strands are being woven together. So even this thing that he can kind of name, and, and I think that passage is so beautiful and we should take very seriously that this is a kind of, um, a sort of like way of being in the world and of, of understanding what it is to be in the world that is um, beautiful and, you know, has is full of kinds of possibilities that this chapter just shows us being like you know what it looks like when you don't take attention to the world seriously mm -hmm. um but then then also really there are all of these ties um to like um when they uh meet the, you know these like you know hearty uh good cook uh mm -hmm. indian warriors right like all of their varying religions also are full of like overlaps and echoes and like the same source material as mm. like the buddhism and the taoism right or you know like um, you know, even the asuras, right? Asuras mm. are also like in in Hindu stories as much as they're in Buddhist stories. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and we've seen in previous chapters, of course, like um, that in Islam, right? The supposedly like monolithic monotheism is itself extraordinarily diverse. Mm. Um, and full of lines of cross-pollination. And, you know, what do we learn here? Like places that have been wiped away were the places where explicitly, you know, we had explicit coming together between Muslims and Buddhists, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, exactly where, you know, or like part of the world of, um, 
what's her name and what's his name in the Years of Rice and Salt chapter. Yi-Chin? Um, no, wait. Uh, qu- uh, <laughs> Kwong? Kwong? Kwong. No. Kong. Kwong. Kong. Kong. <laughs> we should, uh, I should have notes. Uh, but anyway, you know, like that, Ibrahim. you know, that in quite incredibly, that like, um, you know, really beautiful chapter about like, you know, what's the relationship between like philosophy and the philosophy of history and poetry and like the quotidian details of daily life Ooh. is also about like, you know, the um, the coming together of these two supposedly radically separate tradition <laughs> traditions, mm-hmm. like not only in that synthetic account that Ibrahim produces, but like in their their love and their co- they're like co-scholarship right and like you know so the kind of um you know it does seem like one of the things about like by here um is that in his immersion in you know in his immersion in belief like he gets some things um but also still has to feel like there's something special about that belief or distinctive about that belief Mm -hmm here that is opposed to the gross monotheism that he thinks is what Islam is, you know? Um, But I like, I just like, I think that that's such a kind of, um, uh, I think what I, one of the things that I think is interesting about how that happens in this chapter is like, we don't get kind of like hit over the head with like, look, all of this stuff is way more complicated than it seems like it is, or like the drawing of distinctions, like the drawing of these kinds of radical distinctions is in one way or another in the service of, of empire. But yet that's not to say that this picture of the kind of like attentive observational being in the world of what here is described as Chinese Buddhism, that's not to say that that is not like, you know, uh, like a beautiful version of thinking about what it might mean or a possible way to be in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, like it can't really get kind of like separated out, you know, like it's not a territory. Like mm-hmm. ideas don't have territory. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's just like empires want them to have territory. <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, I wonder too, like it, it feels to me like the book, you know, one of the things a book asks us to or like the challenges of uh, that the book presents is like, what are the things that we can, what are the, what are the things we can acknowledge as like universalisms? Yeah. Um, yeah. And what are, and, and what are the limits uh, of kind of that, uh, uh, of plurality? I mean, like plurality is seen as a, a kind of a good thing or you, you use the word diversity an episode or two ago. Um, is seen as a good thing. And here it's almost presented as like the reason that the, that the Travancore league is, is winning is that they, they represent a, a diverse set of views. Um, and, but as you say, like we've seen the diversity within Islam as well. Um, but then also there is this constant, like kind of move toward or striving for a kind of universality that could, you, you know, that could um, join together as well as join together while at the same time preserving the diversity that makes um, sort of uh, not, you know, both individuality, I guess, but also just like um, more specific belonging uh, 
possible, right? That would mm-hmm. actually give, mm-hmm. that would actually give meaning, right? Like, um, so that, it, you know, it would be wrong to say that everybody's the same, but it would also be uh, wrong to say that everybody is irrevocably different, right? There has to be some kind of, because difference gives, provides meaning, like, you know, um, so the, 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 the war here is really like the balance, you know, or like the challenge of the, of the book seems to be, you know, how do we find a balance between this kind of sense of a, a desire toward universalism and a, and a, uh, a parallel desire toward kind of like a sense of individuality and belonging, I guess. I mean, that's so, I was just, I was just thinking, you know, that, um, you know, that's one of the questions that matters in like how, um, in the kind of like settling of Mars and the Mars trilogy, mm. right? Like how do you keep it so that like all of these different life ways that people are so committed to can kind of exist together, but at the same time as in the writing of the constitution, at the same time have something that holds them together that can be a way to manage certain kinds of conflicts, but also to insist on like a care for the planet it- mm-hmm. itself, right? And then that made me think, well, one of the interesting things about um, the, you know, using the idea of rebirth to take us through Mm -hmm. this alternate history is so in the, you know, with the first 100 on Mars, like they get, um, uh, you know, they get this extraordinary life extension that lets them live through and observe, you know, these great, enormous historical changes. uh, but they're always, you know, and they themselves like adapt or don't adapt. Um, and of course they sort of like age along, along, um, with, uh, along with those changes, but they, they have this capacity for like, um, they get to observe mm-hmm. over this extraordinary stretch of time. Right. And, you know, here, um, the, here, the Jati, who, you know, the, there's a way in which the first hundred, like, have the same kind of connection amongst them. They're inevitably connected to each other, right, just by accident, but it, but the connections remain the entire time. And here, because they keep being reborn, like, they don't have that kind of, like, continuous, that continuous gaze or that mm-hmm. continuous observation, right? Mm-hmm. And yet also, mm-hmm. and they keep being reborn, not into, you know, they're not like, oh, you know, like bold, bold just like gets older and older, but in that same like embodiment from that same set of like, you know, cultural roots, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But instead can be, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a girl or a boy, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. this kind of a person or a, that kind of a person, so many different bodies, and yet also the same, right? So so mm-hmm. there's a way in which something, I mean, I don't have a, like, this is something I'd like to talk about more, and maybe it's going to make sense to think about it when we get to, like, the end of the mm-hmm. book, that kind of comparison between what we get to think about history when we have this band of characters who have this longevity to them um, and what we get to think about history when we have this band of characters who are reborn over and mm. over and can search back into their connections with each other and like as in this chapter draw certain kinds of lessons from it and also try to do 
do better, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, moving forward. Um, but also themselves experience extraordinary diversity, intellectual diversity, diversity of embodiment, cultural diversity, all of those things from life to life, even, even like, you know, species diversity, right? Here's a, here's a, this, that's great. I mean, I think that's amazing, like, a question that we want to keep pursuing about, especially the difference between, yeah, the difference between longevity treatments and this rebirth. But here's a, let me proffer a a theory. (laughs) Oh, please. Because one of the things that I really want to ask Stan, and I'll probably forget the next time we get to talk to him is, you know, he's a, he's a brilliant writer. I mean, like, this is like incredible literature. But so often in his books, and also, maybe not just in his, not, maybe not in his books, but in the reception of his books, people just talk about science, right? They talk about mm, colonizing mm-hmm. Mars, as if his books were about colonizing Mars, you know, they're not about colonizing yeah. Mars. <laughs> they're about people and the relationships, right? Um, but I want to know, you know, what is the role that he sees in human, you know, progress or the future or human living together for the arts, for literature itself. And I don't, you know, I don't, in what we've read, I haven't, I don't believe I have come across a character who is like, say, a novelist, right? Um, Necessarily, like, I, you know, um, but the, the, well, well, except in uh, at the end of the Martians, purple in Purple Mars, there's a novelist. Oh, well, Purple Mars. There is a novelist in Purple Mars. That's right. Um, but he's doing everything except for writing novels because he just finished his writing his novel and he gets to he gets to drop it in a mailbox and not worry about writing it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um, but my 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 proffer of a of a uh, interpretation is that the characters in being reborn like become texts for themselves so that like the character the the characters in their previous iterations uh, appear then appear as kind of narratives or appear as texts Mm -hmm. that then they are free to interpret and relate to in um in metaphorical or contradictory ways they argue with each other they argue with each other about their past lives as as uh quo and baidu here like well i was trying i was trying to do these things too and you know the blame's not all on me i know you were trying and you fucked up that time but i fucked up this time or whatever so that they serve um they're able to look back on their previous lives as texts rather than as human beings and then therefore take that kind of a you know more objective not purely objective but um view on them and interpret them and and sort of argue with them um in order to kind of mold future action um uh mold future mold future action determine or or influence um the actions that they that they would subsequently take yeah yeah so i um I mean, first of all, I should say that question about like longevity versus rebirth, which I think mm-hmm. that we talked about that a little bit early I think on, we did, but yeah. also like um, that came out of um, a an email exchange with our friend Amos, who emailed ah. me that thinking, saying he was thinking about that. And I was like, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and then, um, yeah, I think that idea of like, what is the relation to the past, like the possibility of a kind of interpretive relation to mm-hmm. the past self um uh a friend of mine suggested that um 
there might be a way to think about the kind of formal differences between the books of the novel, so the way in which they take up these yeah. different kinds of formal modes mm -hmm. as, um, uh, as in one way or another, suggesting something like pointing forward to the next kind of rebirth, mm -hmm. um, which is a, an idea, like, obviously, I have to think about more, but I think that there's a really interesting kind of play between like the formal differences between the books um, and the kind of like where sort of where the jati is and mm -hmm. like what it is they have or have not learned right, right. Um, which I think fits quite well with that that idea that you were just putting out of like um, you know the sort of storytelling function of mm -hmm. remembering the past life and then thinking um, thinking through that. I mean, I feel like this chapter, that moment with Quo is like the most explicit version of that that we've seen of it being interpretive as opposed to just like mm -hmm. this kind of like slightly alarming re-experience of a past. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's really interesting to think about and thinking about what that does to like how, you know, how that does, how that is and is not like the kind of challenge to rethink um what history is and what our relation to history is that mm -hmm. like the Mars novels yeah. present. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought cool. of the, I just thought of the moment when like Maya or that whole chapter, when I guess it's Maya is reading back over, you know, Frank's life and like he's, she's reading yeah. all these biographies and then she right. appears in the biographies sometimes. She's like, who, who are they talking about? You know, that, right, that right. kind of like misrecognition. Um, and then also they, yeah, as, as the Mars trilogy goes on, I think even the characters talk, you know, talk to each other about, you know, they're, cause they're constantly having these memory problems so that they ask right, each other, exactly. didn't you do that? Was that me? Oh, I can't remember that. Uh, and, and then sometimes we, the reader are able to look back and confirm or disconfirm whether that actually happened. And sometimes we're not, sometimes they refer to, to events that didn't, that weren't recorded in the prior novels, you know? Right. And isn't there, there's a scene when, isn't it Sachs who like wants to have like some treatment done to like help him try to like forget less that involves like an explicit revisiting of the, um, well, they the, do the they murder do. of what's his name. Right. Oh, I don't remember that, <laughs> but they do eventually like come up with the, you know, cure for memory loss. And then they have this kind of almost epiphanic moment where they right uh or and it's also it's an epiphanic it's an epiphanic ecstatic and almost drug moment when they do remember like literally everything uh and it's completely like overwhelming for them and then they all kind of just wander around in a daze like as if they're tripping on acid or something um yeah anyway yeah but it's it is interesting to think though the sort of like the the memory of a life in which you were um, in most of the ways that one could like count, right? Entirely different, an yeah. entirely different person. Yeah. Like that, you know, so that like the memory of the memory of a past life in that way, but you know, because of how much like, uh, because, because embodiment does matter. The memory of a past right. life must be something that is quite, different right right like, or, but or or yeah. it's like not your story in exactly that same the same kind of way that we think about like excavating our own you know our own memories is about excavating our story it's true but also i th feel like back to page like 574 if you were to take like reincarnation and 
and Buddhism like to its, you know, absurd end or something. There's this, or, or at least in this kind of heightened moment, there's this paragraph that says, you know, but now all a nightmare, a nightmare speeding up, however, breaking apart and full of non sequiturs, as if the dreamer left the rapid eyed stirrings of the end of sleep and the waking of a new day. Every day we wake up into a new world. Each sleep causes yet another reincarnation. Some of the local gurus spoke of it as happening with every breath. So that, you know, um, for the truly, I don't know, I don't want to say fanatical, but fanatical uh, 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 Buddhists, every breath is a new is a new world and therefore produces a new past self for you to look back on, um, as a, as a prior text to learn from and sort of, um, produce a new reading of, or a new, um, a new distance from, or something like that. I mean, I think to me, the, the helpful thing about thinking about it that way is that, um, it forces us to really focus on the process of making meaning, like producing the world where the world doesn't just mean the physical world around us, but like the ideas that we surround ourselves with uh, and internalize as well so that you're constantly being forced to make and produce um, meaning uh not only in relation to the things that surround you, but the things that you used to be and the things that you used to do. Yeah. Yeah. Although I would say that that, I mean, that conception of like, you know, waking from sleep and, and you are fundamentally different mm-hmm. is like really at odds with like, mm. um, you know, I mean that, that is a completely different conception of what a self is or could mm-hmm. be. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, because, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, the having a self rev- I mean, I think, you know, has to rely on some idea about, um, um, about being right. Right. And being as something other than, than becoming right. And that is an idea of like, you know, Mm. existence as just like, um, as becoming, I mean, and what's so weird about the idea of like the rebirth here is, is that it is about both, right? Like this kind of constant becoming. And yet there is something right. That ties this little band together Mm -hmm. um and it seems like it's much it matters much less the kind of like um you know array of character types than the than the relations between them right you know that those are born again and again and again um uh but you know we have some sense of like both this kind of like ongoing this ongoing process this sort of becoming and we also have some kind of idea about being because there is something there that is getting returned to the world mm-hmm. um even if you know you might think that in the like episodes of rebirth in which you can't recognize anyone else in your jati like well effectively like um you know there is no essence there you know because you are completely cut off from it right mhm yeah um, yeah yeah cool i mean maybe too awesome. it is awesome maybe too the the idea of like a new a, bre- a new breath a new self every moment is just it, w- it would be better to think about a new opportunity to remake to remake the self at every moment so that again it's it's back to like not optimism but just hope that um you know that 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 life is full of opportunities to you know um, to make to make the world to make the future different. Yeah. Anyway, we yeah. should stop talking because now we're just getting into like uh, freshman dorm room. <laughs> 
conversations. <laughs> Actually, no, we're not getting into freshman dorm room conversations because freshmen, they're stupid, guys. They're dumb dumbs. <laughs> dumb dumbs. No, I'm just, never mind. I'm thinking of something else and I'll share it with you uh, off the pod. <laughs> Uh, that was awesome. That was a great, great convo. Freshman great convo. dorm room or no. Great Freshman convo. Or no. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back hopefully next week for Nasara, which is a very long one, and we'll hope to do it justice. And we're rapidly approaching the end of the years of rice and salt. And Good we Lord. Do, yeah, we do plan on doing another one after this. And also Stan's new novel is coming out in October. Um, hopefully. Mm, very exciting. We're, we're debating about whether we're going to start a new novel and try to finish it before the the new novel comes out or what but we'll um you know you'll be fully you the listener will be fully informed as to (laughs) what we decide almost the minute that we decide it i'm sure exactly exactly because inevitably we will only decide while actually recording ourselves trying to decide Exactly. Um, but if you have any passionate opinions about what we should do next, uh, you can email them to us at maroononmarspodcast at gmail.com or you could tweet at us at podcast on Mars or you could even leave us a voicemail if you download the Anchor app, um, which is always fun but almost never happens. Uh, anything else to add, <laughs> Hillary? Plugs? No, that's great. That's great. I don't have anything to plug. Okay. Other than let's all just continue uh, living. Yeah, keep on keeping on, folks. Yep. Just keep living, as Matthew McConaughey would say. JKL. (laughs) And nice, nice. On that note, thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.